Today's uh, scriptural reading is Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom, wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of God. Good morning, everybody. How are we? That was a huge, resounding, awesome I know we're like, we're Baptists, and so like, we're afraid to respond, you know, in our services, so it's fine. I get it. Um, my name is Cody Hinton. For those of you who have not met me, um, as a bit of a background, uh, I've got about 20 years of ministry experience, and uh, 15 of that was vocational, which just means that someone decided to pay me for whatever I was doing. Um, but that was mostly still bivocational, so I had another job where someone else paid me for other things. Um, but then in, in 2020, uh, God called me away from vocational ministry. And there's a huge story there, and um, some of you know it. Uh, if you don't and would like to hear it, I would love to uh, maybe sit down with some coffee or a cigar and tell you about it, because uh, it's cool like, to see how God moves. Uh, even though it's not always what we anticipate and plan for. Um, But in 2021, God called my family and I to Collins and to Sacred Mission, and it has been amazing ever since we came here. Uh, We love you guys. You guys have become our family. Uh, This place has become our home, and uh, it's, yeah, uh, it has been one of the best year and a half or whatever, in my family's life. Uh, and so we just thank you for that. It's an honor to, to be here among you guys. Um, and it's been a joy to, to be able to serve, to serve in things like kids' ministry. And in, and in a couple weeks ago, I got to serve on the mission trip with the youth. Uh, and that was, it was awesome. I never thought I would step back into youth-ish ministry again. And so uh, we'll see if that's something God has in store for me or not. Uh, But a couple weeks ago, Tim asked me if I would uh, preach today, 
and when I asked him if there was something that he wanted me to preach on, his reply was, no, we're not in a sermon series, but I heard really good things about what you taught on the missions trip. So that's what we're going to look at today. So if you were on the missions trip, I'm sorry, you have to suffer through it again. Uh, but as we learned a couple weeks ago from Josh, suffering leads to endurance, and uh, so it's good for us. Um, but yeah, we, we live in a culture that centers on self and centers on identity. Our identity is one of the most important things that we have, they tell us, that we even can pay for software and things that will protect our identity from being taken from us. And we often focus our efforts and our energies in making sure that our, our identity is something that is of value. We work hard to make sure that people see us and they know exactly who we are. The problem is what we put out as our identity is usually not what God says we are. So I uh, struggle with something that uh, psychologists call imposter syndrome. And this is something that uh, has really kind of grown up out of the last several years, especially being in ministry and, and that story that I said I would love to share with you and stuff. I often feel as if I don't belong wherever it is that I am. Uh, in my position at work, standing up here on the stage, whatever it is, I feel like an imposter. And I'm constantly battling against this idea that someone is going to figure that out and it's going to destroy my life, right? And a lot of this, I think a lot of people that I know kind of deal with those same kind of thoughts and those same uh, feelings of, man, if they just knew who I really was, my life would be over. If they knew who I really was inside, they would not love me, they would not be my friends, um, and it would be terrible. And so we strive to put up this identity that we think is going to be acceptable, that we think is going to be loved and you know, brought into whatever culture or group of people that we want to be with. And a lot of these feelings, a lot of this negative stuff that comes from this feeling of inadequacy and imposter syndrome, I think stems from comparisons. I don't know about you guys, but I have a lot of social media accounts. My actual job that I get paid to do deals with social media, and so I feel like I'm on there quite a bit, probably way more than I should be. But if you're like me, we have these things where we're looking at these images and these pictures and these posts of these people's lives and we start to compare ourselves to what we see on there. Maybe it's not social media for you guys. Maybe uh, you're you know, above the age where social media is a cool thing, or maybe you're below the age where like, Instagram and stuff just isn't cool yet. Maybe for you, it's just the people around you. You see your neighbors, you see your friends, and the new house that they just built, or the add-ons, or the truck that they bought, or the side-by-side -side that they're cruising around town in, which happens all the time here in Collins. Like, 
I kind of really want one. But, you know, again, that's this whole imposter syndrome thing. But we compare ourselves. We compare ourselves to people all the time. And we feel like our life just isn't what it's supposed to be. It's not what we'd like it to be. We lose ourselves by trying so hard to be what we aren't or believing that we are something other than what God says we are. So today, I want us to focus on these few verses here in Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look at a little bit of Ephesians chapter 2. But the idea, the main theme I want us to leave here with today is this. Knowing who we are in Christ leads to His glory through our good works. So that's it. If you want to leave now, you can leave knowing the exact point of this sermon. But if you want to stay and hear like how we get that, uh, I would highly encourage you to. So knowing who we are in Christ leads to His glory through our good works. So first we're going to see who, we, who God says we are. That's what we're going to look at in Ephesians chapter 1. And then we're going to contrast that with who we are or were before Christ and what exactly it was that changed us. And then we're going to conclude with seeing how that brings glory to God through our actions. So there, there's the outline. That's where we're going to go, kind of give you guys those type A people, you know, exactly what we're going to be shooting for. And the rest of you guys can just come along for the ride uh, and enjoy the journey. But before we jump into Scripture, let me pray and ask the Lord to bless us this morning. God, you are so good. Uh, you are more than we deserve and we could ever imagine. And God, we ask this morning that you would move here in this place. God, we ask for your presence here. Holy Spirit, please enter this place with your power and enter our hearts with your changing forces. God, that we would, uh, that we would just love you more and we would see your glory in a greater and mighty way. Uh, we love you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so let's look at Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, it'll be on the screens, or you have a Bible, you can open there. I believe there are maybe some Bibles somewhere. Uh, if you guys need one, we can find one for you. Um, but Ephesians chapter 1. And the first thing I want us to see when we look into this, the first point for today is, in Christ, we are blessed. In Christ, we are blessed. It says this, starting in verse 3, Blessed be the Lord and our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So Paul, who wrote the book of Ephesians, uh, has already done his introduction, and then he starts off this section, which in the Greek is really weird. It's actually a 200-plus word sentence, all one sentence, which, you know, blows English grammar teachers out of, you know, blows their minds, and they hate it. But this is a 200-word sentence, and that's why it sounds the way it sounds as we read through these verses. But he starts it off with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. In Christ Jesus. 
what we see here, this is really cool. One of the, it's one of the few verses where we actually see the Trinity all in one. We see God the Father, we see God the Son, and we see the Spirit giving blessings in this verse. But it shows us that we have been blessed. And not just blessed, but it says every spiritual blessing. It's not like God said, okay, I'm going to give you a couple spiritual blessings. I'm going to give you just a portion of the spiritual blessings. He says, I'm going to give you every spiritual blessing I can give you. Everyone. So now, remember, as we're walking through these first 14 verses, this is just for people who are in Christ Jesus. And we're going to talk about what that means as we go through this sermon today. But for those of you who are in Christ Jesus, this is for you. Those of you who maybe are still searching or just not quite sure what that means, you haven't really done the whole Jesus thing, this isn't talking about you, but it could be. So just remember that. So, now we have to look and see, what are these spiritual blessings? Well, that's where verse 4 comes in. It says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So the first spiritual blessing that we see is that we are chosen. We are chosen. That's kind of a cool idea. It blows me away. But it says that we are chosen before the foundation of the world. Now, this whole verse, we could spend 45 minutes just preaching on these concepts in this verse. We're not going to. We could talk about that later. But what we see here just for today is that God, who created all things, who sustains all things, chose you. Chose you. It says, before the foundation of the world. You're like, well, what does that mean? That means before he said, let there be light. Even before that, before he said, I'm going to take nothing and make something, he chose you. He had you in mind. He said, I want you to be mine. He chose you. That alone should be enough to like just blow our minds. But he continues. The second spiritual blessing that we see, verse 5, he says, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So he willed to predestine you for adoption. To predestine. Now, this word predestine is kind of a, a crazy word in our culture and in Christendom and stuff, and it makes a lot of people's hairs stand up and they don't really like that word. But all it really means is that he thought of you. Like it was he predetermined that something would happen. Right? And there's a lot of theological ramifications and stuff we can get into, but again not in the 40 minutes-ish we're going to have today. But really, beyond predestined, he predestined us for adoption. He predestined us for adoption. So he chose you to be his. He chose you out of all the people who have ever existed. He chose you. But not only did he choose you, he said, I want to make you my child. You see, there's this concept of that we're all just God's children. And everyone's like, oh yeah, every created being is God's child. That's not true. 
every created being, every person, is just that a created being. That doesn't make you God's children. And we're going to see a little bit later what that actually makes us. Only those who are in Christ are actually the children of God. Only those who have been radically saved by Christ are his children. And so what we see is that God chooses us and then he adopts us. And we're like, oh, wow, that's really cool. That means I'm a son or daughter of God. And that is right, but we don't really grasp this because for us in our culture, we don't have the same view of adoption as they did in the first century. You see, in the, in the first century, especially Jewish culture and even before then, um, a father would pass on, much like we do today, would pass on his inheritance to his children when he died or when he felt old enough that he couldn't continue providing. He would pass on his inheritance to his sons. And you say, okay, here's what I have. And if he had one son, he would pass it all. If he had multiple sons, he would divide it up among them. And the oldest son, according to Jewish law, would get a little bit more than the rest of them and all that kind of stuff. But what could happen is if you were a biological son and you did something to dishonor your family, to dishonor your father, he could disown you. And he could remove that blessing and inheritance from you. So, said, uh-uh. You messed up, you are no longer getting what I have to offer my children. An adopted son, however, according to the laws that they had in that culture, could not be disowned. He couldn't be disowned. No matter what you did, no matter how much you dishonored the father who adopted you, he couldn't kick you out. So what we see here is that when God chooses us and adopts us as his children, there's nothing that we can do about it. We can't, like, tick him off enough that he's going to kick us out. We can't walk away. It means that we are his forever. We are his forever. We are his adopted children Next, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. The next spiritual blessing that we see he gives us is redemption. Redemption. You're like, well, that's kind of a weird word. If you're not in churchdom, if you're not in Christianity, they're like, what does that mean, redemption? We think of, not so much anymore because they're kind of phasing it out, but like can redemption. We take our soda cans and stuff, we get five cents back because we had to put a five cent deposit down, right? We redeemed it for what it was worth. The difference here is God doesn't redeem us for what we're worth because we're going to see in a little bit that we're not worth very much. He redeems us. That means he takes us out of our broken state and our sinful state, and he makes us no longer that. He makes us righteous. We're really, really going to dive into this once we get into chapter 2. But we have been chosen. We have been predestined for adoption. We have been redeemed. The next spiritual blessing, we jump down to verse 11. It says this, 
In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, there's that crazy word again, according to the purposes of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We have an inheritance. So that goes along with this whole being adopted as sons, right, and daughters. He brings us in and he says, I'm going to give you stuff. I'm going to give you really, really cool stuff. And as we read throughout other, the rest of Scripture, there's things like crowns and palaces or rooms, depending on your translation, and a place with God. We have all this stuff that we're going to get. It even says that we are co-heirs with Jesus, the Son. So as an adopted son or daughter, we are given an inheritance. That means when Christ comes back, when he redeems all of creation and makes it his and cleanses it of its broken sinfulness, he's going to hand out inheritance. And we get to glory in that with Christ, and we get to worship God. But really, the greatest inheritance that we can ever receive is Jesus himself. If God were to take away everything else that he says that he'll give us, the crowns and the rooms and everything else that comes with the new heaven and earth and the new Jerusalem, and we just got Jesus, that is infinitely more than we deserve. Because Jesus is enough. Scripture tells us, Paul tells us, that Jesus is our all in all. He's everything we could ever want and everything we will ever need. He alone is our greatest inheritance. So we've been chosen, we've been adopted, we've been redeemed, we've been given an inheritance. And finally, in verse 13 and 14, it says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth the gospel of our salvation. That means when you were told the gospel, proclaimed the gospel, and you believed in it and him that you were needing of a savior, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So again, we talked about this whole idea of adoption and how we cannot be disowned by anything we do. But then, not only that, Jesus sends and God sends the Holy Spirit down upon us when we are saved, when we have surrendered our life to Jesus. We hear the gospel and, we, and the Holy Spirit touches us and moves our heart to say, yep, we need you, God. We, we have to live with you forever. The Holy Spirit comes down on us and he seals us, guaranteeing that nothing could ever separate us from that inheritance guaranteeing it. He seals us. Again, this is something that's kind of outside of our culture, uh, this whole idea of sealing, right? We don't use seals much anymore. Really, we don't even use snail mail much anymore. But for those of you who are uh, boomers and Xers and older millennial like I am, you already, you know what it is to like take a piece of paper, which, you know, paper, it's uh, made of trees and stuff, and you can write on it with things. And uh, you fold that little piece of paper up and you slide it into this envelope, which is a folded piece of paper, and it has sticky stuff on the edge, right? 
And then we would lick that, which is weird. That means we send like germs and DNA of us to everybody we send a letter to, right? But we lick that thing, and it tastes awful, and we seal it shut. And we send that letter off, or we used to, any ways, but... And uh, it would ship off, and someone would pick it up. And uh, for those of you who are really old, they would pick it up on a horse and take it. But they come in cars now. And uh, right, we, we send those things off. Well, those seals can break. They can break in transit as they're being shipped. They can be really easily, like, just you could take steam, because I used to do this with, like, Christmas cards and stuff. You would take steam, and you could get it to open up, and then you could reseal it, things like that, right? And you can get in those fairly easily. But back in ancient times and in old cultures, even just a few hundred years ago, they would take these envelopes and these parchments and stuff, and they would seal them. They wouldn't lick them with their saliva, but they would take wax, and they would push on a ring or a signet or something like that into this wax, and it would harden. And the only person who could break that seal to look at whatever was inside the legal document or important document was the person to which that document was being sent. It was usually from a king or a lord or something high up, right? And it had to go to someone of of such stature. The only person who could break it was that person, the recipient of that letter. This seal is much like that seal. The Holy Spirit comes on us and he presses the image and the signet of God on us The difference is that it cannot be broken. It can't be broken. God's not going to come down and snap that seal. So what he's saying is, I've given you all these spiritual blessings, and not only have I given them to you, I have sealed them on you so that you will have them forever. There's nothing that can take them from you. There's nothing that can remove you from the blessings I want to give you. And there's no reason I would ever stop giving you these spiritual blessings. We are in Christ forever once we're there. So we are chosen. We are predestined to adoption. We are redeemed. We are given an inheritance and we are sealed. This is who God says we are. We're His. We're His. And all of us, like, like we think about that, we're like, yeah, that's amazing. That's incredible. But maybe it doesn't hit us in the way it should hit us because we don't really understand the flip side of who we were before Christ chose us. So what really helps is if we, and when, we take this concept of what we just saw here in chapter 1, these ideas of who God says we are in Christ, and we contrast it with who he says we were in chapter 2. So guys, if you will flip over or look over to chapter 2 with me, we're going to see who we were before Christ. So what we saw in chapter 1 is that in Christ we are blessed. We're going to see something different here in chapter 2. Verse 1, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is who it says we were. What does it say? The first thing, verse 1, we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. Now, that doesn't mean that we were physically dead. It's a spiritual death. Just like in Genesis chapter 3, when God says, if you eat of this fruit to Adam and Eve, he says, you can do whatever you want, just don't eat of this one tree. If you do, you'll surely die. And the serpent comes along and he's like, yeah, but did God really say that? I'm pretty sure if you eat it, you're not going to die. And so Eve is like, yeah, let me take it. And she eats it and she doesn't die. And Adam, who for whatever reason is like not freaking out that his wife's talking to a talking snake who's telling her lies, is like, well, she's the most beautiful thing here in the garden and she just ate this and I'm pretty sure if I don't do something, uh, she's going to leave and I can't be with her anymore. So I'm choosing her because she's beauty, Right? I mean, I don't blame him for that. You know, if I'm choosing between life alone with a bunch of animals and my beautiful wife, I'm choosing the beautiful wife, right? But I do blame him for, like, prior to that, not stepping in when she's being deceived by a snake. And so when that happens, Adam takes the fruit and Eve takes the fruit and they eat it and they don't physically die. But they die spiritually. Because prior to them eating of that fruit, they were connected with God in a way that we can't understand. And they, they walked with God and they lived with God and they had this spiritual connection and life within them that like glorified God and like had all these things that we long to be. And they ate the fruit and that died. It was broken that God had to separate himself from them, and so he cast them out of the garden. And that brokenness wasn't just in them, but it, it rippled throughout all of creation. And now we live in a broken world that uh, yearns for the time when Jesus will come back and redeem it. It groans in agony of the sin and brokenness in which it exists. So when Paul says here that you were dead in your trespasses, he's not saying that you were just this lifeless corpse physically, but you were a lifeless corpse spiritually. You were walking around with nothing of substance inside you. We were dead in our trespasses and our sins. Two, he says, in which, so we're dead, and then in the sins, trespasses and sins, in which we once walked. So we were dead spiritually, we walked in our trespasses and sins, and we followed the course of the world, the prince and the power of the air. That means that what we followed, what we sought after, were ideologies, philosophies, and desires that were not God's. We followed these things that said, God is not who you think he is, or God doesn't exist, or you don't need God. We followed these ideas that said, you can do it on your own. You can live the life uh, how you want to live. You can do all these things. Just forget about that God guy. 
That's what it says we followed. And the prince and the power of these heirs of the air is could be Satan. It's also most likely just these ideals, these government structures, or these these philosophies, these thinkings that permeate our world and our cultures that we live in that say God doesn't exist and you don't need him. And we followed those. We followed those. It means that everything that we chose and everything that we did was anti-God. It was against God. And it said, I'm going to do this without him and I don't need him at all. So we were dead. We followed the power of the air. We followed the, the world's philosophies. And we were sons of disobedience. Now you contrast that with what we just read and how it says God adopted us for his, to be his sons and his daughters. This is telling us that before that, we were sons of disobedience. We were daughters of disobedience, which means that we were rebellious children. That we didn't look to God, or as Paul says in Romans, we didn't even like search for God. God was not on our radar. He was not in the back of our mind. We focused solely and only on things that were not God's. We were sons of disobedience. And then this one, this one hits home. Verse 3. Yeah. Among whom you all once lived. So the sons of disobedience, meaning we all were among the sons of disobedience. We lived, and then we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. So, we were dead. We followed the world and the prince of the air. We were sons of disobedience, and we lived in our passions. This, one, this one's a little tough for me. It's a little tough I think it hits a little deeper because we're told all the time that we're just supposed to follow our heart, right? Just follow your heart. Your heart will guide you, right? That's basically the premise of every Disney movie. Just do what your, your gut tells you. Just do what is inside you is, is leading you to do because that's who you are truly. That's who you were designed and created to be, Right? And this is saying that that's not a good thing. You were following your passions. You were following your desires. You were following what your flesh and your body and your mind wanted. And you were only and forever choosing that. The problem is the Bible tells us that our hearts are deceitfully wicked. So everything that we choose is choosing what isn't of God. Every desire in our heart, every uh, passion in our mind, and everything that we want is anti-God all the time. But you're like, well, there are people that don't believe in Jesus that do good things. Yeah, there are. But even in doing good things, we do it out of selfish motivations, and we do it out of self-serving desires. Isaiah tells us that even our good works are offensive to God. So, 
Before Jesus, we are dead. And before Jesus, we followed the world. We were absorbed with all these philosophies that were against God. And we were sons of disobedience. And we were rebellious. And we followed our hearts, which led us astray. We only and forever will and would and did choose sin and destruction and what was the opposite of God. Finally, it says that we are children of wrath. Children of wrath. This is probably one of the most powerful, damning descriptions we see in this passage because it says we're the objects of God's wrath. What that means is like we're walking targets. And as we're walking around this earth, this idea that when God finally decides to pour his wrath out, it uses the imagery of this bowl full of God's wrath sitting in heaven and that he's going to like just tip it over and it's just going to pour out onto the world. But this is going to happen at judgment when Christ comes back at the end. He's going to pour his wrath out and it is going to come like heat-seeking missiles to everyone who is not in Christ Jesus. So before being in Jesus, we have this target on our back and that wrath is honed in. That laser-guided missile is pointed at our bullseye and it is heading for us. Wrath is defined this way because I was like, well... We understand what wrath, we know the word wrath, but do we really understand what it means? And it's defined this way, in punishment or vengeance as a manifestation of anger. Fierce anger, vehement indignation, or rage. We're like, well, that doesn't sound like the God I read in the Bible, but it does. Because there is an anger that is not sinful. God burns with anger towards the sin and brokenness of this world. And that anger that he burns with uh, is just filling up and boiling in this pot of wrath. And one day when he chooses to come back and he says, all right, I'm done. It's over. I'm sending Jesus back. He's going to take all of his children and that wrath is going to pour out on this world. That anger, that indignation, that rage towards brokenness, towards sin, towards rebellion is going to pour on to this world. And those of us who are not in Christ are going to be the object of that wrath. See, this is a starch contrast to what we see in chapter 1. And when we understand these two, we truly understand who we are in light of who Jesus is and in the presence of of a holy, almighty God. When we truly understand those. But, we have to ask the question, how do we go from this worthless, broken, sinful state that we see in chapter 2 to the blessed state that we see in chapter 1? How does that happen? What makes the change? And verse 4 and 5 tells us. This, this is probably my favorite passage or verses in all of Scripture because right here is, I think, the most powerful 
verses, especially in this book, in this passage, it says this, verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even, even when we were dead, even when we were all those things listed beforehand, made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The joke, and a lot of youth pastors say this, and of course I'm going to say it, is that this is the biggest but in the Bible. Right? This but changes all of history. It changes all of the world. It changes the universe. Right? Because every single one of us, from the time that Adam and Eve sinned throughout eternity, everyone who is born on this earth, except for Jesus, is in this state, is defined by verses 1 through 3. Every single person. There's no exceptions. But God, who was so rich in mercy and who was so filled, overflowing with love for that which He created sent his son. His son, who was sitting in heaven right next to his, his father, was surrounded by a myriad of creatures who forever and always, every moment of every day, which there isn't days in, in heaven, but you know what I mean, were sitting there saying, you're amazing, you're awesome, you're incredible, you're holy, holy, holy. Always. He's sitting there like just basking in this Bring it on, creatures. And they're like, you're awesome. You're amazing. You're incredible. We love you. And he says, you know what? I'm going to leave this. And I'm going to head to the earth. And I'm going to take on this fleshy sack of fluids. I'm going to submit myself to that. And I'm going to live for 30 plus years in the brokenness in the mess that is reality, that is this world. I'm not going to get sucked into it. I'm not going to get tempted by it. I'm not going to be uh, swayed. I'm going to live perfectly and sinlessly so that one day I can crawl on a torture device and be mocked and beaten and humiliated and shamed and killed so that those dirty, broken creatures that I love can be mine. And he did. He suffered. He died. He was humiliated and uh, tortured and beaten and mocked. He did all of that because that's what we deserve. He took what we deserve, the death that we earned, the humiliation that we earned. He took all of that on him. And not only did he do all of that, while he was hanging there, God said, I'm going to take every sin from eternity past and eternity future. I'm going to take all those sins and I'm going to pour them on him so that he can pay for them, so that he can cover them. And that those who I choose to make mine, I can take his righteousness and his perfection and I can take, replace their sin with that so I can make them mine. Jesus did all those things. And then three days after he died, he rose from the grave. He destroyed death. He destroyed 
hell, and he looked at Satan and is like, what else you got? Because these are mine. This is my creation. I will do with it as I please, not you. And he did all of that so that he could make us alive, alive spiritually and eventually alive physically when he returns and resurrects those of us who are in Christ from the dead. So while we were dead in our trespasses and sins and we followed the world and we followed our own fleshly selfish desires and we were children of wrath and we rebelled against God, he came to us and he said, I love you. I choose you. And I want you as mine. I love you. I choose you. And I want you as mine. So while we see that in Christ we are blessed, in this passage we see that in Christ we are made alive. We are made alive. Now I want us to jump down to verse 10. And we're going to see the last point today. And it says in which, it says in Christ we have purpose. So in Christ we are blessed, and in Christ we are made alive, and then in Christ we have purpose. Chapter 2, verse 10 says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're created for good works. See, it says that we are God's workmanship, this word here, workmanship, in the Greek is poema. It could be where we get the word poem from. Um, it could be. We don't really know. But it, it means workmanship. Or in extra-biblical writings outside of Scripture, in Scripture it's only used twice, and every time it's, it, this time it's used as workmanship, the other time it's just as created things. But outside of Scripture, it's used often to describe masterpieces, works of art, beautiful sculptures. And if you guys have seen or been to or, or noticed anything of the wonders of the world from that era, from the Greek Colosseums and all that stuff, they were obsessed with masterpieces and works of art. And they were amazing. I have uh, family members, actually they're Kim's family members, who were just over in Europe, and they went to a cathedral where the entire building was hand-carved marble. I mean, this thing was amazing. We're talking like Notre Dame-type stuff, right? Like, it was incredible. Or Notre Dame, depending on how you want to say it. They knew what a masterpiece was. And Paul here says, you are God's masterpiece. You're his work of art. And you're not just something that's supposed to sit there and be admired. But you've been created for a purpose. You've been created to do something. He says, you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand. This kind of goes back to chapter 1 where he says, he chose us beforehand. Not only did he choose us beforehand, he said, hey, I've got things for you to do. 
So God, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, the one who holds everything together, comes down and he looks at you and he says, I chose you, I love you, I want you as mine. And I got stuff for you to do. So let's get busy. God has a plan for you. He has great plans for you. Things that he said before the foundation of the world, I'm going to have you do. So does that mean that every one of us is going to be remembered for these great things? Are we going to be like the great theologians of the past that we read their books or the missionaries that we hear of like Adoniram Judson and, and those guys and we're gonna, God's going to do all these great things and then, you know, a hundred years from now people are going to say, hey, remember so-and-so from Collins? Maybe, but probably not. But those great works that he's talking about are not any less great than what those guys did because those great works are going to happen in people's lives. Maybe the great work that he has for you to do is to love and disciple your family well. Maybe the great work that he has for you to do is to love your neighbor and share meals with them and tell them about Jesus as you love them and you walk through the crap that they have in their life. Maybe the good works that he has for you to do is to be a good worker at where you work and to love your coworkers, no matter how annoying they might be. He has great plans for you, good works that he's already set aside for you. So those great works may not necessarily land you in history books or philosophy books or seminary classes, but they're going to impact someone's life. They're going to change someone's life. God is going to use you to move through someone in a mighty way. So, Let's get busy. So now that we understand our identity in Christ, who God sees us as and who we were before he decided to work in our lives, before he decided to work on our behalf, we realize that in Christ... Or knowing who we are in Christ glorifies God. We didn't read all of them, but over and over again throughout these passages, it says, for God's glory, for the praise of his glorious name, over and over again. We bring glory to God by doing what he created us to be. Now, here's the thing. As people, we tend to be people of extremes, we pendulum swing from one to the other. So this 
idea of knowing now who God says we are and knowing who we were beforehand could lead us to this extreme or this extreme, when in reality, God most often wants us in the middle. He wants us to find the balance. And this is true for most of our life. He wants us to find the balance. So one extreme, we either view ourselves as being better than we really are. We think, especially us Iwegians, we think we can handle it, right? We think we can just work hard enough and we can take care of it on our own because that's what we've been taught our entire life. That if I just work hard enough, I can get the crops to come. If I work hard enough, I can make myself what I want to be. If I work hard enough, I can fix every problem. This view leads us to self-sufficiency and not needing God or others. It can even lead us to having a view of others where they're less than we are. We can have this view of, you see, I'm a good Christian and he's a filthy sinner. Oh, I see, God has saved me and he's chosen me. So I'm something special and I just, I don't really want to touch or mingle with those dirty, broken, nasty sinners. Or we can have this view where they, are, they don't need us, so we're so good that we're not going to help them, or that they need us so much that we become a savior in our mind. I'm going to go in and I can save them out of their brokenness. I can save them out of their nasty living style. I can save them because of how good I am as a Christian. We can tend to take just chapter one and see, ah, God chose me because I'm something special. And in reality, we see in chapter two that we're not. The other extreme is that we can go the opposite say, side and we can forget all of chapter one and we can just focus on chapter two and say, I am so worthless. I am so broken. I'm so messed up. I'm so sinful that God can't love me. God can't save me. I can't do anything good. I can't do great and mighty things for God. I'm not worthy of it. So when we find the balance and we take chapter two and we take chapter one and we put them together and we see, yeah, we're not worthy. We are worthless, but God chose us and made us something. Amen, brother. And we can do whatever he wants us to do. Find the balance in those because that one extreme will lead us to either self-loathing or sometimes even self-harm. And God looks at you and he says, I love you in spite of your worthlessness. And I want to make you worthy. I want to make you something. Because I've chosen you. When we have true understanding and view of who we are in Christ, we see that we are completely worthless and unworthy on our own, but God has given us life, purpose, and hope. And all of this is for His glory. Not for us. Not so we can say anything about us, because that's what He says a few verses later. It's not so we can boast. It's so that we can go, He's amazing. He is awesome. And He did it all for me on my behalf. So guys, if you are sitting here today, 
if you are breathing in this room or on the live stream or listening to this later, you have a purpose and you have hope. If you wake up in the morning, God has something for you to do for His glory. You're not just living another mundane life. You are living a life that God has set aside for you to do something great for His glory and His magnificence and your good. Know that. And if there's anything we can walk away from, I pray today that we just truly understand who we are in Jesus Christ. We understand who we were and how amazing it was that God saved us anyway. And how awesome it is that he now wants to use us in his purposes to spread his kingdom, to advance his gospel, to make his name and his glory known throughout all the world. And that starts here in this gym, in this town, in our homes, and in our communities. Kevin DeYoung, who is a uh, pastor, theologian, he says this. One of the central motivations for holiness in the New Testament is to be who you are, to understand your identity and your union in Christ, and to live that way. Guys, live in who God says you are. So what is your identity today? What is your identity today? Do you find yourself this morning sitting here, listening online, do you find yourself as one who is in Christ Jesus, who's been given all these spiritual blessings, who's been redeemed and made alive? Or do you find yourself still a rebel, a dead, hopeless sinner, child of wrath, without Christ. Who are you this morning? Who do you identify as? If you are the latter, if you are uh, one who is saying, I just don't know Jesus, I don't understand this whole Jesus thing, God is coming down here today because you're here, and he's saying, I love you. I've chosen you. I want you as mine. Not because you have done anything to earn it, but because I've done it all for you. He wants you. He loves you. And if you find yourself in him, if you find yourself already transformed by the gospel, there's three questions I want to ask you. What is God calling you to do? What is he calling you to do? We cannot leave any situation where God is moving, where God is communicating, and not have him say something to us. He's calling you to act or do something today. He's calling you to do something for his glory. So what is it? Secondly, who or when is he asking you to do it? Because we can make these ethereal things and say, oh, God just wants me to live better. God just wants me to have more hope. God wants me to not fret or worry so much. And those are great and good things. But I want to challenge you. Let's go more specific. Let's dive deeper. Because he's calling you to something specific. And he's calling you to do it in a specific time. So what is he calling you to do? 
When does he want you to do it? And who does he want you to do it with? You see, we're not created to be alone. We're not created to be on our own and to live by ourselves or to do this without help. We're not lone rangers. We were created to be in community. And he wants you to do whatever it is he's called you to do with somebody, for somebody, either to mentor them or to have them mentor you or just to encourage and edify the body. So what is he calling you to do? When is he calling you to do it? And who does he want you to do it with? God, thank you so much for this time today. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for who you say that we are. Thank you for the rich mercies and love that you lavished upon us by pulling us out of our darkness, by pulling us out of our sinful state and making us your child. God, I pray that you would not stop at the end of this service, but that you would continue to move in our lives. Holy Spirit, please continue to to transform hearts and to to mold us and to shape us to be more like Christ. God, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would continue to just dive deeper into our muck and our brokenness and our messiness and help us to shine, shine like Jesus. God, we love you. We love you. Amen. So, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, he, he invites us, he invites us to uh, this table that he uh, calls communion. See, he, he asks us and wants us to come together and to take these elements and remember what it is that he did for us and how he saved us and how he made us alive. But he also wants us to sit around this table to be unified as the body. He wants us to come together saying, yeah, we're in Christ and we're in this together. So those who are serving are coming up. And these guys are going to take gloves and they're going to have the bread in their hand. And the bread is something that represents Christ. And then there's juice and there's wine, so obey your conscience there. But come and enjoy and participate in in this time together as the body of Christ. This is for those who are in Christ. If you're not in Christ, uh, it won't really mean anything to you. But I love how Tim says, he says, instead of coming to the table, please come to Christ. Uh, so we'll do that today. You come down the center aisle, grab the elements, and then return to, uh, to your seats, and we will, we will take this together.